Well, there shouldn't really be a Jonah chapter 4. It should end at the end of the third chapter. I mean, if it did, if it was just the first three chapters, it would still be a remarkable story. But it doesn't. Jonah has this fourth chapter. And this fourth chapter, I think, shows us most clearly how masterfully crafted this book is. Because in this final chapter that was read to us just then, we see some insight and information that's introduced that actually reorders and reorientates the way we read not just the fourth chapter, but indeed the whole entire book. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, The Sixth Sense. Put your hand up if you saw that movie, The Sixth Sense. Yeah, I think it was over 20 years ago. I saw it with Mandy and my father, and uh, she saw a connection between my father and I in that both of us didn't get it straight away. Um, But, you know, the the cogs did turn, and when a particular piece of information comes at the end of that movie, it just changes every single moment of the movie. Jonah has been rescued. And Jonah has been rescued from certain death. He's been rescued from certain death in the storm through the fish. He's been rescued from potential death as he's gone to Nineveh and the retaliation that he might have expected from these Ninevites. But here, oddly, in chapter 4, we learn that Jonah is dead, at least not literally, but metaphorically dead. So angry that he wants to be dead. It's important that we unlock this chapter because I hope to do that this morning and in doing that I hope to shed some light on the book as a whole. So I'm going to ask God to help us in that. So will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come now, not merely in my words, but in your spirit by carrying these words. So we ask, Father, that you would rain down your spirit upon us now for the sake of your Son and what it is to trust, follow him and speak of him to a world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to consider really two things. You can see it on your outline. We're going to consider Jonah's anger and we're going to consider God's answer to Jonah's anger. So firstly, Jonah's anger. Jonah is angry. Jonah has anger issues. And in fact, five times in chapter 4, we're told that Jonah is angry. You can see there in the first verse of chapter 4 that Jonah was greatly displeased, but he was more than displeased. He was angry. How angry was Jonah? Well, he's angry enough to die. Have a look at verse 3. Now take my life, O Lord, for it is better for me to die than to live. It might seem a little dramatic. I don't know if sometimes you experience that in others or in yourself. You become a little emotional, a little overdramatic. I think it happens to all of us. And if it doesn't, it's probably worse because we're not connected enough with our emotions. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so angry that you've actually wanted to die? What has triggered Jonah to to get to this point in his life? 
after all that God's taken him through, if you've been with us for the last three or four weeks, what's got him to this place? Well, on the surface, he's angry because of his call, because of what God has asked him to do in his life, of how God has asked him to serve. You know, we have expectations of how God might want us to serve, and sometimes they don't meet with the opportunities that he places before us. Some of you might have been angry in the way that God has asked you to serve. Well, Jonah's angry because he's been called to the Ninevites. They're from the safety of Israel. He's been called to speak to these people that he doesn't even speak their language. He's been called to speak a message of judgment. It's a difficult and dangerous task. It's an impossible task. In fact, Jonah is set up for failure. No wonder he's angry. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like God has placed you in a situation in life where you're angry? Where you have a comfortable area that you'd like to exist in, but God is calling you beyond that. And God has placed you in, in fact, a situation beyond that. And you feel like you're set up to fail in a job, at school, in a relationship, in a family. You look at where you are and where God has placed you and it looks bleak and you don't think you can do it and that makes you angry. God's called you there but there's no way out. In chapter 3, we learn, in fact, that it's not that Jonah has been set up for failure. The irony is, Jonah is successful in the very task that God has asked him to do. God has not set him up to fail. He's, in fact, arguably the most successful preacher ever to exist in humanity. He cleans up the city of Nineveh in three days. So powerful and potent is the response that even reaches the height of the king, and he too repents. And then comes chapter 4. Because if it was, if Jonah was to be so uh, upset and angry at the task because of its danger and difficulty, chapter 3, verse 10 might read this way. When God saw what he did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them destruction that he had threatened. Verse 11, And Jonah returned to Israel with great rejoicing. With great rejoicing. If it's the failure that was the trigger, then his success should have been the happiest of endings. Jonah is not mad because of his failure and rejection. He's angry because of the success that God has given him, because they accepted his invitation of repentance. It's like you've got a 19th wedding anniversary coming up and you want to take your wife out for dinner, you want it to be a nice time, but then as you're on your way to dinner, you bump into Davo. Now, Davo's a little awkward. And Davo doesn't get the normal kind of social cues. And you're chatting to Davo on your way to dinner, and you say to Davo, look, it'd be great 
to have dinner with you sometime, but Davo takes that to mean tonight. And so there you are, before you know it, there's the three of you sitting there for dinner. Davo doesn't get the message and it's hard. Often we invite people to church. Often we pray for people to come to church. But I think too often there lacks the, the joy when those prayers are answered, when God does bring to us people, because often it's, it's not quite the way we saw it working out. You know, we invited someone to come to church, but the person we invited couldn't come, but invited the person that we didn't really want to come to come. Or the person that does come to church, we've been praying for God to send us people who are hungry to hear of him, but they're, you know, they're not quite what we were expecting. They don't quite fit the way that we would want them to fit. You know, he'd be such a great Christian, I'll invite him, but we don't need any more awkward people in church. See, the issue for Jonah is that it's deeper than his success. The question to ask is, why was Jonah successful in the first place? How did this come about? Well, we know that this came about because God indeed had mercy. Even when Jonah wasn't willing to show mercy in a message of mercy, it was God who was having mercy on this city of Nineveh. God brought about this turn, this, this repentance. And so Jonah has a problem with God. It's there in verse 2. He says, I knew it. I knew it, God. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. See, Jonah's problem isn't that he's ignorant of God. It's the opposite. He knows what God, God is like. He says, I knew it. You're always like that, God. You're always like that. And perhaps Jonah is angry because of the way it affects his life. We'd love for more people to come to church. We'd love for people to become Christian. But so often, we don't want that to drastically affect our lives, to significantly affect the way we think and feel and act and speak. Davo's still at dinner and it is your anniversary, so you've ordered the nice bottle of wine. And Davo polishes most of it off. He's gone to the toilet because he's polished most of it off. And you think just for a moment you'll, you'll take a selfie. And there you are, taking a selfie, commemorating your time together, checking that your hair is great, that your smile is not too awkward. My son tells me my smiles are awkward uh, in my selfie. You've got to make sure it's not awkward in a selfie. And there you get home after that and Davos photobombing. He's in the background waving and his hair looks better than yours. Jonah is upset. I think because of the impact upon his life, because of the way in which God is acting. The way in which the way God is acting doesn't correspond to how 
he thinks he should or might. Chapter 4, verse 3. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah can't imagine a world sitting with dinner with the Ninevites. Fall of his life. They've been the enemy. They're not just the enemies, but they're unclean. They're the very scum of humanity. And here, Jonah is being called to them. He's being called to people that he doesn't like, that he doesn't want to go to. Jonah wants to Photoshop these people out of his life and his nice existence. And that's what Jonah tries to do. He tries to Photoshop this whole episode and event. Have a look there in verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. What you need to know is that this is not simply a geographic reference, but this is a symbolic reference. When Adam and Eve moved, which direction did they move? They moved east. And in moving east, they moved away from God's heart and from his presence. See, what Jonah does is he's setting himself up there in his shelter, looking down on this city, crossing his fingers, spitting the dummy. He can't imagine a world where he's in relationship with these kinds of people. And let's be fair, uh, the Ninevites weren't the most lovely of dinner guests. He moves away from those that God is saving. And as he moves away from those that God is saying, as he moves east, he's actually moving away from God. Could we be like this? This is not what I imagine. As God works out his plan of salvation, and we know his plan of salvation is to bring the nations in. But as God works out his plan, so often it doesn't conform to our plan, our plan for our lives, our plan indeed for our church. Sometimes I think for us, sometimes, as welcoming as we are as a church, many people say that, I think sometimes new people are a little bit of an inconvenience for us. I mean, how long are they going to be with us? Maybe... I should invest in them only when I know how long they're going to be with us. And are they like me? Because they're the people who are best to invest in, those that are like me. See, I think there's a challenge for us that as we take a gospel, as this gospel is preached in and around our church, we are to move away from those that God is saving. We're not to kind of sit up the back and wait and see, removed and detached until we're satisfied that the way God is working is in conformity to our plan. No, we're not to move east. We're to move into the centre of where God is working and the people that God is bringing to us as a church. You see, Jonah is angry because how God is acting and what he is doing doesn't fit doesn't fit with his own view of what's best for him. And God responds to Jonah's anger 
You can see his response there. This is our third point, God's answer in verses 4 and verse 9. God says to Jonah in his angry anger, have you any right to be angry? angry? Verse 4, verse 9, do you have a right to be angry? And at least Jonah is honest before God. Do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? Yes, I do. And it's comical. And if you knew Jonah, it would be embarrassing. And because we don't know Jonah, we can see how arrogant it is. And yet here's the way that the book of Jonah works. The book of Jonah is in so many ways a comedy. It's not a ha-ha comedy to our minds, but it's funny. And the joke's not on Jonah. The joke's on us. Because in the book of Jonah, we are the ones who, Jonah, who are so much like Jonah. So what Jonah does, so what God does for Jonah in the middle of his anger is he, is he really takes him to the heart of the matter and indeed the heart of the book and the heart of God himself there in verse 11. And he asks him this question. Have a look in verse 11. Should I not be concerned about the great city, that great city? Here's a question that Jonah, that God asks Jonah. Why not, Jonah? Should I not show mercy? We're going to answer the question, why should God show concern or mercy for this city? I'm going to answer it in three ways. You can see that on your outline. Firstly, creation. God has mercy on this city because, indeed, this is a city that God has created. Remember back to Jonah chapter 1, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago? Jonah says to the sailors as the storm comes up, he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. See, God is the one who's brought about our world. God is the one who's brought about the sea and the dry land and indeed the people on that dry land. And Nineveh of all cities, but including Nineveh, Nineveh is part of God's creation. In fact, Nineveh is full of what God delights in. What does God delight in? He delights in people, those that he has made. And that's what a city is. A city is just an intensified collection of the image bearers of God. That's what a city is. And yet, within this city, these people who bear God's image are destroying themselves and those that he has made. But as much as God loves people, we know that. God loves humanity. God loves more than people. Because while human beings are created to be the pinnacle of God's creation, we are not all that God has created. There's another reason that God has mercy in this city, and it's actually got less to do with people. Have a look there in verse 11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people, yes, who cannot tell their right from the left, and many cattle as well. It's interesting. I wouldn't have raised this if it wasn't in the book of Jonah. This is not where my mind first comes. Until I've been watching some documentaries on food and food production, until quite recently, 
I had no idea where the food came from and didn't care. Um, but God cares. Did you know that God cares about animals as well? Animals are indeed part of what he has made. In Psalm 50, verses 10 to 11, it says this, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. All animals, God says, are his, because he has created them. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, we see laws that preserve the welfare of animals. And for us as humans, and indeed for us as Christians, the way we treat animals is actually part of our moral scope. Because God made those animals, and he cares about them, and therefore we should too. That's why the RSPCA wasn't founded by raving atheistic lefties. The RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was started by Christians in 1824 by the Reverend Arthur Broom. And he created it with this aim. He said he wanted to create a voluntary organisation that would promote kindness. That word kindness is similar to the word mercy toward animals. In fact, even... Um, Psychologists know that there's actually a connection between the way you treat an animal and the way you treat humans. Um, serial killers and psychopaths often, if you look at their history, engage in acts of cruelty as a trial, as a start of their progression to their pathology. Cattle, interestingly, is the last word in this book. And the animals back in chapter 3, verse 6, are involved in this repentance. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that, the, that it's not just humans who groan because of the violence and sin in our world. The whole creation itself groans because the whole creation is longing to be liberated from decay. Just as humans are the apex of God's creation and his redemptive purposes... Humanity does not exhaust God's creative and redemptive purposes. Creation is part of it. And that's why I think God gives Jonah this illustration. He wants to wake him up. He wants to show him in a demonstrable way why he has done what he has done. And so he uses something of creation, this vine, to illustrate because Jonah is sitting outside the city, he's sitting there, fingers crossed, in anger, hoping to see a fire and lightning show of destruction on Nineveh. And there in verse 6 of chapter 4, God provides this plant, this vine that grows and protects and shields him. And he is happy, he loves it, it's this beautiful vine, he rejoices in it. And just the same word is used, just as God provided the vine, he also provides the worm that eats the vine. And guess what? Jonah is angry again. And in verse 10, cutting through the middle of Jonah's anger, God says to him, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh 
has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left, and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? See what, Jonah is, see what God is saying to Jonah? Why should I not care, Jonah? If you're upset at this plant, this plant that's featured in your life for just a moment, this plant that you had nothing to do with, if you're upset about its destruction, should I not be upset about the destruction of those that I have made and indeed of this city? God pities Nineveh because of his creation. He shows mercy to Nineveh as well because of his covenant. That's the second point there. God we read in the scriptures, is the covenant-making God. He makes a promise of relationship with his people. And in that promise, something of who God is, is demonstrated. Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, you're slow to anger and abounding in love. What Jonah does is, in fact, repeat something that God has already said before. Jonah is quoting from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And if you know anything about that section of the Bible, it's where Moses is sitting there, not dissimilar, an exchange between God and a prophet. And Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. I want to know who you are and what you're about. And God comes before Moses and he proclaims his glory, what he's about, indeed his name. And he says this in verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. See, this is who God is. At the heart of God is his mercy, his willingness to forgive. This is who God is. This is the nature of God and this is the character of his covenant. He's entered into a relationship with people he needs to forgive because he's a forgiving, merciful God. Do you know that there is more mercy in God than there is anger? God is just, but his mercy abounds. And this is the same God throughout the Old Testament and the New. Jonah can't handle this. There's this cognitive and existential dissidence. He can't, he can't understand it in his life and he can't understand it in his head. And you know, it's great for him to sing Amazing Grace in chapter 2. It's fantastic for him to experience God's mercy. It's easy to sing the song and to smile and to be joyous. But now in chapter 4, he's just a whinging, pathetic child. But guess who hasn't changed? God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed from Exodus 34 before Moses. God hasn't changed all throughout the book of Jonah. God hasn't changed this day or for all of eternity. He is gracious and he is compassionate. And either we understand that and believe it and live it or we'll be consumed with anger like Jonah. See, both Jonah and the Ninevites are debtors to God's mercy, and you and I are debtors to God's mercy as well. His covenant 
was with Israel, but it wasn't just for Israel, it was for the nations. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, you might remember that God said to Abraham, look up at the stars, you know, your descendants will be that number. But you know what he also says? Where God says to look? He says, look up, but where else? He says, look down and look at the sand on the seashore and there you'll see the number of your descendants in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. The grains of sand, that will be the number of your descendants. Guess what? Jonah is rescued by the fish and he's vomited up to where? He's vomited in lands on the shore. And I can't help but think that God is rubbing Jonah's face in it. The promise to Abraham, his graciousness, his pan-national promise to bring all the nations to himself. Friends, signs are important. And so perhaps the next time you walk on the beach, you might be reminded, not of the sand and how annoying it is, that's what I'm reminded of all the time, but you might be reminded of how gracious our God is to the nations. What are the places that we hope God never calls us to? The countries that we would just never go to. The cities that we can't go to. Indeed, and perhaps more relevant for us right now, the neighbourhoods or the neighbours that we don't want to go to. The people that we would prefer photoshopped out. The final reason that God gives us as a close is... Christ. This is why we should be concerned of the city, because of creation, God has made it, because of the covenant, his promise of mercy, but most importantly, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was greater than Jonah, the one who himself was rejected. We don't want to speak about Jesus so often because we don't want to be rejected. We're not capable enough, we think. We're not smart enough. We don't know enough. When Jesus spoke, he was rejected. He says this in Luke chapter 11. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is speaking of? Well, specifically, it's Jonah's preaching. It's the word of mercy. And Jesus is saying here, you got no better sign. There's nothing better to pin your hopes on other than this word of mercy that I speak. Jonah called for repentance 40 more days. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, here we have great encouragement to speak a word about Jesus, the one who was rejected even in the face of rejection. See, we should be concerned for the city as well. We should be concerned for the city because of Jesus. To speak of one greater, to speak of one greater than Jonah. Not to move east, but to move to those that God is saving. Not to be angry in our disappointment and discouragement and retreat. But as God says, to Paul in Acts chapter 18 when he's in prison and he's being sent to the city, a people he doesn't know, a people who are violent. 
God says to him, Paul, I have many of my people in that city. And so do for us. There are many people that God has in this city and in this community that we need to go and speak about the Lord Jesus to. Let's pray that he might so work in us that we do that. Amen.